Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is uh, November 22nd, 2016. This is episode 1903 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is the last show I will do uh, until I return from Halloween. That doesn't mean that uh, there won't be shows. Tomorrow we'll be doing a rewind, TSP rewind, that is. Back to the first show that I did with Chef Keith Snow on making uh, Thanksgiving great. And uh, you'll be able to uh, listen to that. You'll learn how to make the perfect turkey and all the day before Thanksgiving, which is much better than the day of Thanksgiving. But I said this yesterday, and I'm going to say it now. If you have a frozen turkey and it's still in the freezer right now on Tuesday morning, you are wrong. Take it out. Take it out. Take it out. Take it out of the freaking freezer. I'm just saying. Uh, next up, after that on Thursday, we will run the uh, Thanksgiving special, a survivalist view of Thanksgiving, which we've been running every year since season one. So this will be the eighth time we've run that show now. Uh, maybe someday we'll actually update it. But I, I think it's kind of like the old uh, Charlie Brown stuff. Do you really want the old Charlie Brown Thanksgiving and the old Charlie Brown Christmas specials redone? I don't. Uh, they're something that's just kind of cool in their, their early development. And that's what I think that uh, our two holiday specials uh, are for the Survival Podcast. So uh, make sure you check in and listen to that one. A lot of people do listen to it with their family and learn what the holiday here in America is really all about. Today, though, since we're going to be doing that as we coast through this week and enjoy our holiday time, I thought a chat with Jack would be a good show today. So I have kind of a twofer for you today. One, I'm going to talk a little bit about the holidays and just some advice for the holidays as you go forward and some ideas uh, for some homemade gifts you can do uh, with your kids and some maybe not with your kids and some fun ways to work preparedness and bond as a family together during the holidays. Some different little things you could do during this period of time when you have a little bit more time to spend with the family uh, that would seem like fun yet might actually enhance your preparedness. And uh, then the second half of the show is going to be about Nine Mile Farm and what our plans are for 2017. We had a pretty good year this year on the farm. Um, we've we've come a long way since we started out with this uh, three-acre patch of, don't even want to call it dirt, patch of rock, this brown rectangle from, from Google uh, Earth that's now a green rectangle from Google Earth. But we definitely have some plans moving forward, and I thought you guys might like to hear about those uh, as we head into, again, the holiday season. And then also final thoughts as we enter this season, and a, a closing song that has a lot to do with not getting too worked up about things. Um, maybe not the original intent, but that's my take from it, and I'll tell you about that when we get to it. Before that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. 
Hey guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home. Up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. Next up, our supporter of the TSP Business Directory at tspbiz.com today. Technical redneck equipment. They provide both fun and practical gear for those times. You need to add a little redneck to your tactical kit. Check them out on the TSP Business Directory, again, at tspbiz.com, and they'll have a link in the show notes as well today, of course. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1903, and the, the history segments are becoming more and more things that are familiar to us in the modern day. We have today the Wright Brothers' Dare to Hope, and the Panama Canal Lease, Buy, or Insurrection. Notable births, uh, Hugh Hartman and Rudolph Isling, creators of Looney Tunes, are both born this year. Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, famous comedy team. I think most of us remember Bob Hope. And George Orwell, uh, Bing Crosby as well. So, talk about holiday season, huh? Come on, White Christmas. Anyway, George Orwell, author of the novel 1984, is born this year in 1903. In other news, Crayola crayons are marketed to artists and schools. The name means oily chalk in French. Ford rolls out the Model A, $800 for the runabout, about $22,000 in $2015. The headlights and the horn are extra. And the United States leases Guantanamo Bay from Cuba in perpetuity. The naval station is there to defend Cuba from European invasion, which is a reasonable concern in 1903. Uh, before I read... Uh, The uh, the one I'm going to read for you, the Wright Brothers Dare to Hope. I want to point out the Crayola Crayons Factory actually is in, uh, it's not Allentown, I think it's Bethlehem. Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton is like a little metroplex in of itself, even though the whole thing is probably a couple hundred thousand people in it in total. Uh, but we went to the uh, Crayola factory when my uh, niece and nephew were visiting us when we lived in Pennsylvania, and it was actually pretty cool. So if you're ever in that part of the world and have nothing to do and want to see a true American company and uh, how it still does its business today and have fun with your kids, check out the Crayola uh, factory. Again, I think it's in Bethlehem. It might be in Easton. It's somewhere in that ABE area. Okay, so the Wright brothers dare to hope. Gliding has been all the rage since the 1870s, but the gliders of the day have flaws. Particularly, the wings are not curved properly to produce lift. Orville and his brother Wilbur have been following the work of German glider experiments and failed attempts at powered flight by Professor Langley. Yet despite their admiration for the scientists they have come before them, the Wright brothers believe they can correct the flaws in those previous designs. Orville is an accomplished bicyclist, which is why they opened their bicycle repair shop in the first place. But Wilbur wants to fly so bad he can taste it. Wilbur is the driving force behind the effort to bring, build extremely light engines that can deliver the horsepower sufficient to drive a propeller. They also patent the ailerons, which literally means little rings and little wings in French. These little wings allow for better control in flight. On December 17th, 1903, Wilbur and Orville Wright dragged their rig to a beach just south of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. 
They fire up the gas engine, and Orville lifts off in the first man-powered flight in history. It is the first successful flight, that is. The distinction will become important later when Langley claims he was first. Orville flies all of 850 feet, but it counts. Two high school dropouts have just put a thumb in the eye of science. Man can fly, and they just proved it. My take by Alex Shrugged. One would think the reward for bringing powered flight to mankind would be the respect of one's peers, the appreciation of a nation, and riches beyond the dreams of, uh, I don't know who that is, Advarce? But you'd be wrong. Scientific American magazine thought it was a hoax. Patent lawsuits tied up the development of the airplane until World War One, forced everyone to pull their, pull their collective heads out of their uh, co- cooperate and pull their collective heads out and cooperate in saving their own lives. The Wright brothers made some good money eventually, but Wilbur was the businessman. He died early, leaving Orville to carry on as best he could. Quote, we dared to hope we had invented something that would bring lasting peace to the earth, but we were wrong. No, I don't have any regrets about my part in the invention of the airplane, though no one could deplore more than I do the destruction it has caused. I feel the airplane much is the same as I do in regard to fire. That is, I regret all the terrible damage caused by fire, but I think it is good for the human race that someone discovered how to start fires and that we have learned how to put fire to thousands of important uses, end quote. Orville Wright commenting on the destructive power of bombers during World War II. Indeed, it must be uh, like Mr. Nobel who invented dynamite and thought it would bring peace to the world and it ended up increasing the power of war. I never really thought about how the Wright brothers must have viewed the airplane in combat. My take, though, is how the scientific community and the world as a whole basically looked at these guys in, uh, with, uh, with, with resentment. And it's because they weren't the ones that were supposed to do it. They weren't scientists with uh, sheepskins, right? They weren't uh, academics. They weren't the type of people that are supposed to do something this momentous. They were just regular blue-collar guys, high school dropouts. And society still looks at people that are like that that way. You can't be important if you don't have a piece of paper to say that you are. Though I'd like to believe we're reaching a turning. There is a turning going on right now where people are beginning to realize results matter more than pedigrees. And I think you're going to see more and more of that as we see more and more trouble for the vaulted education system. And we begin to finally separate the concept of education from schooling. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's move into the uh, main topic of today's show. And again, I wanted to kind of just give you some words as we go into the holidays. I know a lot of people are going to have friends and family around that you normally don't see throughout the rest of the year. So my first piece of advice today is from this day forward, screw politics until 2017. People can talk. I mean, I turned on Fox News today, and I immediately wanted to grab my airsoft gun and shoot myself in the head with it. Um, just for a figurative, uh, you know, assassination of myself because it was so ridiculous. All this fighting and all about what's going to be and what isn't. And Obama says Trump can't just do things and he might be there to, okay, you're going to go away. You're going to go away. No one's going to give a damn about what you think anymore other than, than magazines and books and TV. You're not going to have any authority. Bye bye. Piss off. That's the way it works. That's the Constitution. You should know you're a scholar. Trump's going to come in and do what Trump's going to do. That's not going to happen until mid January. And between now and then, all it is is a bunch of talk. So that's fine if you're interested in it you want to look at it on TV and whatever. But as far as something that would create a fight or an argument with members of your family or family friends or things like that, screw it. And don't take the bait. 
Because Uncle Louie's going to get drunk and tell you, Trump's going to make America great again. Or he's going to tell you, Trump's going to lead us into war and Nazism or something stupid, e equally stupid. And, and don't take the bait. Oh, that's nice, Uncle Louie. Here, have another drink. You know, watch the Cowboys play or, or something. Don't, don't, don't take the bait. Just don't. Don't have the conversations. Don't be baited into the conversation. Who'd you vote for? I voted for turkey. Let's eat some turkey. I mean, that has, that has got to be the way that you handle this because otherwise you're going to see, you know, the, the same type of thing that happens in houses all over America. Every year, two people that are supposed to love each other fighting over a couple politicians that wouldn't piss on you if you were burning. I mean, seriously, they don't give a shit about you. Why are you, why are you damaging your relationships with friends and family over them? Don't do it. Put it on the shelf until 2017. Nothing is going to happen at all until 2017. It just isn't. You've got a Republican-controlled House. You've got a Democrat president on his way out. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing is going to happen. Don't worry about it. Put it on the shelf. I just wanted to give you that advice. Okay, so now I actually wanted to talk to you a bit about, you know, kind of hanging out with your kids, at least somewhat, and... You know, thinking about the spirit of giving and going into the holidays and things like that. And, and it's a time when a lot of gifts are given. And not just around Christmas. This is a time when a lot of times when people see each other around Thanksgiving, people give things out. A lot of times people see people in the, in between that phase, you know, and people of other faiths like J Jewish people have Hanukkah and things like that. But there's just a lot of seeing people you don't normally see. And a lot of gifts get exchanged that aren't really traditional Christmas gifts. They're just little small things and all. And a lot of money gets spent, and I don't think that's necessarily a horrible thing if you have the money to spend. I I just today, and I know my kid doesn't listen to my show, so I, I won't ruin a surprise. You know the Greystone cookware that I recommend that I've put up on T-Spaz a couple times? Um, I got him a frying pan and a, and a, a skillet, or not a skillet, like the, the square pan, uh, for Christmas for him and his, his wife. Because I know they really, at this point in their life, can't afford to buy good cookware like that. And I know they need it. And I know they want it. And I know that it'll make them happy. I know they want it. And even if they had the money, they would put it away for other things right now. So it's like a perfect gift. So I have no problem with some level of consumerism around holidays or gift giving or lifestyles. But when it gets overly done, it gets over the head. And you get into situations where it's like, I really can't do something for everybody, but with some creativity, even spending a little bit of money here and there, you can do some things that are pretty cool. And some of these things we can in involve our kids with. One of the things I'd suggest that you might consider giving to people is something I've gotten really into this last year and a half, and that's making your own herbal teas. And you can do that from herbs on your property if you have enough stock, and then you know there's zero cost in it at all, and there's a certain appeal to that. But you can also just purchase herbs in bulk. If you just go... On, you know, Amazon, please go through tspaz.com first, tspac.com first. But if you go to Amazon and type one pound organic peppermint or one pound organic lemon balm or one pound organic chamomile, you'll find great suppliers and they're not that expensive. And a pound is a lot. And if you blend up, you know, one or two varieties of homemade teas and put them into like quart or pint jars and maybe put a little label on them that looks nice and a little ribbon that looks nice and, and you give those out, I think that would be very, very well received. Especially if you have like people come over for a holiday party or something like that, serve some of that tea. 
You know, it's cold. You serve some hot tea or something like that so they know what they're getting. And everybody that's tried the stuff we make it just goes nuts. Like, how do you make this? It's like you dump the herbs together, you mix it up and throw it in a jar. You put four tablespoons in a French press, bam, done, there you are. It's it. And it is that easy, but there's something about the fact that you made it and it has so much more character than the stuff you buy in little tea bags. So I figured I'd give you guys a couple of my kind of go-to recipes for, for making teas that I, I found to be really well-received by a lot of people. One is the simplest one I do. It's half lemon balm and half peppermint. That's it. Lemon balm, peppermint, and it's an equally blended tea, which I do a lot of equally blended teas, and I do some dominant-to-one flavor teas as well. And uh, it's so simple, but it's so amazing. By the way, it also is a great infusion for making mead. Three-quarters of a cup of that to a gallon you know, finished product of mead is kind of special. Um, but just as a tea, it's great. I drink it a lot. It's one of my go-to teas. The tea I'm drinking right now is is equally simple but has a, a little bit of a different ingredient profile. It is equal amounts of three ingredients, and those are lemon balm, chamomile, and uh, spearmint. And that one is one that people have drank and gone, oh, my. I mean, it just has this velvety thing going on from the chamomile. It has this... Uh, You know, the spearmint is less assertive than a, than a peppermint. And the lemon balm also brings kind of that velvety feel. So the chamomile is more like a buttery thing. And then the, the lemon balm brings like a velvety thing. And then a little bit of that, uh, you know, that lemon character. And I drink that to the cup with about two to three drops of stevia extract. And it's like drinking candy. It, it really is. And it's, it's a great relaxer. It's good for your throat. I've been, you know, struggling because of being sick, uh, with my throat over the last couple of weeks. I've been drinking a lot of that. Um, another one that I, I think is really fantastic, and you can make this either as a, a slightly caffeinated or a completely decaffeinated uh, thing, and you're going to hear very similar ingredients um, in this one, but uh, done more as a, uh, instead of an equal ingredient, kind of a more of a true blend. And when I say parts in this, I mean whatever you want to measure with. It could be tablespoons, it could be teaspoons. I make a bunch of it at a time. I get a great big stainless steel bowl, throw it on the counter, and I use like a, a small juice glass as my measuring device. So this is made with um, two parts peppermint, two parts chamomile, one part lemongrass, one part lemon balm, and one part green tea. So it's a two-to-one With the dominance to the peppermint and the chamomile, again, you go, so you got two parts peppermint, two parts chamomile, uh, one part lemongrass, uh, one part lemon balm, one part green tea. That's the caffeinated version. You want to be decaffeinated or non-caffeinated, I guess is more accurate. Uh, you supply, uh, switch out the green tea with a blackberry leaf. So that would be uh, two parts peppermint, two parts chamomile, two parts lemongrass, one part lemon balm, one part uh, blackberry leaf. And uh, that is fantastic. That's kind of my go-to over-the-top. You have to have somebody come with that when they come over in the morning, and they're like, how did you do this? Now, there's a lot of other things you can do. One of the great ingredients you can use in your teas is true cinnamon, Ceylon cinnamon, also called sweet cinnamon. I recommend you buy that in chip form. Uh, that can be a little bit more expensive, but it's definitely better for you and better quality than the cinnamon they sell in grocery stores and things like that. That cinnamon is more assertive. It's more spicy, but it's just not as good. 
Uh, I, I've made lots of different teas with that. Passion flower is another great thing. You can just think about the things that you like and the flavors that you like and, and blend them together and be fearless with it. I mean, this is the, the beauty, right? You take a little tea infuser or something like that, and you say, well, I wonder if these three herbs would be together, good together this way. We'll make up enough to make, you know, one or two batches, and if it sucks, throw it to the worm bin or something. But it, it, if you think about the presentation of, like, you know, just a ball jar is cheap. Um, the herbs seem expensive, but when you start buying them by the pound, you start realizing how many jars you can make. Uh, and again, I think a pint is a nice gift size. Even a half pint would be okay, but it's not going to last real long because uh, you do use quite a bit of this stuff. I mean, it it looks great. A little ribbon, a little, and that's something the kids can do with you guys, man. And try to involve the kids and stuff like this. And it's not something people are going to look at and be like, oh yeah, that's nice, you know. People look at something like that and think, you know, that some real work went into it, even though it's simple. Another thing you can do with your kids is. Like herbal salves, herbal oils, and things like that, uh, you know, infused uh, vinegars, all of those types of things are really easy to do. They can be done with just about any herb or, or flavor combination you want to. Um, you put them in nice-looking little bottles. Check out Amazon and put small decorative bottles in and stuff like that. And you can find all different kinds of, you know, options for the way that you can, you know, put the presentation together. Um, herbal salves are so easy to make. I mean, really, if you take the herb that you want to make a salve from, you put it in some olive oil, you stick it in a small uh, crock pot, put it on low and leave it sit there for a few hours or overnight. Or the other way you can do it is you put a pot on the stove and you put it on low heat and you turn it until it get, the oil gets up to about 250 to 275 degrees. Shut it off, put the lid on it, wrap it in a towel, let it sit overnight. Uh, you strain it off. And then you melt in beeswax until you get the consistency you want. That's it. That's how simple that is. And, you know, we do our comfrey salve. And, and the family took a while to kind of get on board with it. You just give it to them. We don't do it as a gift or whatever initially. You just give it to them in a little. We found these little bitty, like, one-ounce or two-ounce Tupperware. I think they're like two-ounce Tupperware cups that were like five for a dollar at the dollar store. And they were perfect to pour it into. You know, we just make up a bunch of it, keep it in the refrigerator. Whenever somebody from the family come over, we'd hand them, you know, one of those little containers. that say, if you get scraped or whatever, use this. And then they use it and are like, oh, that stuff works really good. So then later, if you give it to them as a gift, you give them like a four-ounce jar, you know, with the name on it and all instead of just the little plastic hokey thing, they, they, have, they see a lot of value in it. So those are things you can do. Another, like, this is an easy one that seems expensive until you realize what you're making, right, and how much you get out of it. Bourbon vanilla extract. Now, there actually is a bourbon vanilla bean, and I recommend that you use that, but you can make a vanilla extract using cheap vodka. I recommend you make your bourbon uh, vanilla extract using actual cheap bourbon, a big old half gallon of it. And a half gallon of bourbon, you take that and you split about 25 Madagascar vanilla bean seeds, and you put them in a great big jar All of that goes in there together, and you let that sit for two to three weeks. And every day you go in and shake it. Just every day shake it, keep it in a dark corner. And after about two to three weeks, you strain it off, and you've got about a half gallon of vanilla extract. Now, I don't know if you've priced real vanilla extract, but it's expensive. And you can get a half gallon of cheap bourbon for, like, 14 bucks. Like, I mean, you don't need good bourbon to do this with. The 25 vanilla beans will cost you about 35, 40 bucks. Right, so all in, call it forty and fifteen, sixty-five bucks, okay. But you can make thirty-two two-ounce bottles of extract with that. 
So they're two bucks a piece. You, you can't touch real good quality vanilla extract for that. And all of those could be gifts. You've got to figure out what the bottles are going to cost. But let's say they're going to cost you 50 cents a bottle. So you, you're into it for like less than $2 a bottle. And it makes an incredibly cool gift, especially if it was paired with something like some hand-blended tea or something like that. Because, yeah, you could put a couple of drops of that in your tea and add a vanilla uh, concept to it or something like that. I know this sounds like Kids for Heloise or something like that, but this is the holidays, guys. This is the kind of shit people like to get, and it's a kind of stuff that's easy to make with your kids. And even though it's an alcohol thing, since it's vanilla extract and it's used in small amounts, it's not something that kids couldn't partake in, you know, tasting it in, you know, make cookies or something that, that uses it. My, my wife makes these cookies around Christmas. It's like the only cookies she makes. They're called forgotten cookies. They look like a meringue cookie, but they're a lot lighter than most of those are made. They're made with egg whites and sugar and vanilla extract and almond extract. This year we're going to make them with duck eggs. And you whip them until they're like this thick, you know, they go like a thick marshmallow thing, and you keep going and you keep going. It takes forever. And then they finally get really, they peak, and they're really soft and fluffy. And you put little blobbies of them on, uh, like, parchment paper. You stick them in the oven I'll get to you guys the recipe, you know, maybe next week. But basically, the oven's on like I think 350 degrees or something like that. When you stick them in, you turn the oven off and leave them overnight. That's why they're called forgotten cookies because you forget about them. And man, they're fantastic. People love them. Well, you can make them with that vanilla extract, and that's that could be another gift. You know, a little thing of those with the vanilla extract you made them with and the recipe, right? I mean, again, I know this doesn't sound very survivally, but what I'm talking about is your family here. And uh, I recently got an email asking me, Jack, you know, maybe you should do a show on divorce. Because divorce hits 50% of all marriages. Well, that means those marriages and those families are not surviving. And, and what I try to teach on this show is survival if things go really bad, but survival when things aren't so bad. People are killing themselves all the time, whether it's with poor nutrition, overuse of, of prescription medication, overuse of drugs and alcohol, Poor management of their finances. I mean, there's all types of things that lead to catastrophes and death and dissolution of either life or family. And getting together and doing stuff like this with your kids builds a stronger family. And that means everybody's more likely to survive and thrive. And so that's why I'm doing this today. Um, another thing, and this might appeal more to the men out there, is homemade liqueurs. Um, it's the easiest thing in the world you can do. I mean, you can go out to the, the, the store and buy a couple bottles of inexpensive hunter-proof vodka, and you can make up all kinds of stuff, little sipping liqueurs. Uh, probably my favorite one is limoncello. And, and basically, you, you take a zester and you zest. You want to use organic lemons for this. You zest your organic lemons, and then do something with them. Make lemonade, dehydrate them, whatever. If you do that, then the lemons are basically a wash. You, you got the, the zest for free. You cover it with hunter-proof vodka, and you let it sit. And people say to let it sit for 30 days bull. Within four days, you it's, it's, it's like a chartreuse yellow. It's beautiful. And then you dilute it with some simple syrup, which is 50% water, 50% sugar, to whatever proof you want it to be. And then you bottle it in small bottles and give it to people, and no one's going to complain about that stuff. Now, that's something maybe the kids can help make, but they shouldn't be drinking. Um, I like to make my liqueurs a little bit higher proof. And um, I don't get real, you know, ants in the pants about exactly getting them like a perfect proof. I want to get them in a range. And I like simple, simple things. So I use, I always use 100 proof liqueur because you get a better extraction. 
that lets you dilute a little bit more and keep, you know, um, a proof that's a little bit um, uh, higher. And so I've come up with kind of a basic rule. If you want to take it down to about 80 proof, you need about one cup of simple syrup. So that's a half a cup of sugar and a half a cup of water. So that'll take a 100 proof product uh, per quart. So a quart of that, one cup of simple syrup will take it down to about 80 proof, which is, you know, a typical whiskey straight. It's actually going to be a little lower because you're going to lose some with some of the stuff that comes out, whatever, whatever you put in there, like limoncello, the lemon peel, some of that's going to come out. You're not going to get all of it, but it's going to be around there. That's really a bit high for a liqueur, even a sipping liqueur. So a 60 proof is, is really a nice range to get into. And, um, this will actually yield like about 62, but I like hard numbers instead of fractions to, to make things easy. So if you do two and a half cups of simple syrup to the quart, you'll take a hundred proof product down to 30% alcohol or 60 proof. So that would be real simple. It's a cup and a quarter of sugar to a cup and a quarter of water will make you two and a half cups of simple syrup. And either of those, I'll give you good ratios. You can go down further. Then you got a lot of sugar in there and it's, I don't know. I kind of like to be in somewhere in that range. And, uh, you know, those things are very well received when put in nice, small, pretty little bottles and, and labeled. And you can make three or four different kinds up. Uh, obviously, the limoncello is, is lemon peels. Uh, you can make your own coffee liqueur like a Kahlua. You take whole bean coffee, right, and, and you put it in a grinder like a little hand grinder, and you don't make it to where you would be brewing coffee. You kind of crack it so all the beans are cracked. And you use, I don't know, two cups to a to a, a half gallon, depending on what you're making, a cup to a, a cup to a quart, or a cup to two quarts, a quarter, a half a cup to a quart, somewhere in there. You know, you taste it. If you want more, add more. And you just soak that for, you know, four to five days. You strain it off. You add your simple syrup, and you've got a coffee liqueur. You want to have some vanilla, throw a vanilla bean or tune in there with it. And you can just like, again, this is another thing to be fearless with, but I know a lot of you want recipes and I can't start, you know, concocting 400 recipes for you guys. So I, I have found a book that has probably the best grouping of recipes and it's called Homemade Liqueurs and Infused Spirits. Um, it is uh, by Andrew Skloss and I'll have a link in today's show notes where you can get a copy. It's like 1280 paperback and 10 bucks Kindle. And, um, Most of the stuff in there is diluted down further than the numbers that I gave you, but you can always bring it back up by diluting it down less. It's up to you. That's what I like about doing this, and it's a unique gift. It's not something that when you uh, give it to somebody, they're like, oh, I got five of these from other people this year. It, it really isn't. And even though this is, again, this is one of those things that kids should not be partaking in, but they could definitely... Um, help in the making of them and those are just some ideas i have I, i i'd like to hear your ideas for things like this especially things that you can kind of make that'll be well received and the kids can be involved with the making and or partaking uh or both um also want to talk about some fun ways to work on preparedness and bond as a family this uh holiday season don't do this the day after christmas when the kids have all their new toys and want to play with them Right. This might be something to do like the night before Christmas or the night before the night before, like Christmas pre-eve, like the 23rd. If you're off from work and you're not going to have to go to work on Christmas Eve or something like that. Um, how about lights out night of fun? So what we do is we say we're going to turn the lights out tonight. Everybody's going to have a job to do when the lights go out. Dad's going to turn the lights out. Don't make this hard. 
Don't make this like going out and shutting the main off. You got to worry about the refrigerator and the heater and, and, and stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe jack the thermostat. If you're in a cold climate, jack the thermostat down 10 degrees below normal so that there's a little bit of huddling up and stuff like that. But say, these are the rules. We can do anything as a family, but everybody has to be involved. No Game Boys, no Nintendos, no nothing like that. We can play cards, whatever. We're going to have our, our, our lights on, our lanterns, whatever. If it's cold, we're going to have a fire in the fireplace. And it's going to last a couple hours. Dad, will or Dad or Mom will decide when it's over. And But everybody should have a job. So even the little kids, like, okay, your job is when the lights go out. I'm not going to tell you. It's going to be a surprise. When they go out, you go get the nearest, you know, if you have the emergency wall lights like I recommend, you go get one of those. Or you go get your flashlight and you help Mom find the candles or whatever. And you have a whole plan for how it's going to go. And it should be like 10, 15 minutes worth of work. You know, you're going to go, you know, plug in uh, the, the the backup battery system so that we can have the fan on or what. I don't care, whatever it is. And uh, we're going to get our, our sleeping bags or whatever. We're all going to sit down on the floor, and we're just going to spend some time together. But But have like, okay, this is what we do when the lights go out as part of the game. And, and then, you know, turn the lights back on and give them their crap back. And you might be surprised... That when you turn the lights on, they're not ready for it yet. And if so, turn the lights back off and continue to enjoy it. This makes preparedness fun, and it makes when it happens, and I've always advocated kind of these little drills, when something doesn't, there's no fear. Oh, we know what to do when this happens. And then the kids just start doing it. And the older they get, the more responsibilities that you give them. I mean, you could even have family movie night with the lights out, but you have to run it off the the power system so maybe it's on the laptop and everybody's huddled together watching a a a, a DVD of, of some Disney movie or something I mean whatever you want it to be but kind of bringing that family together and and saying like we can do okay if this was out and again don't throw the main for this this is the holidays you know don't make the kids suffer and don't make it last too long you know maybe do it a couple hours from bedtime anyway so that The lights are already out. It's time for bed. We'll go read a book in bed or whatever, and we're done. And then tomorrow the lights magically work again. Just just something to think about. Um, another thing that you could do during this period of time, if you have the ability, is do some campfire cooking in the backyard. Have a fire night. You know, again, the Nintendo and stuff and shit like that is done. We're not having that. You go outside, set up some chairs, set up the fire. Maybe just make some s'mores or something. You know, but get the kids to understand like you don't have to have an oven or a microwave to be able to cook for yourself. Maybe make some stew or do some uh, Dutch oven cooking or something like. That. Make it, you know, it can be just fun. Make apple cobbler or blackberry cobbler or something like that. Simple, dead simple in a Dutch oven, and show them how to do it. Let them be part of it. Let them roast some marshmallows. Tell stories. Do something like that. This is good anytime, but this is a great time of year to do that because it's cool enough or cold enough to do it. If you're someplace where it's cold enough that even with the fire you're going to be kind of cold, then maybe you figure out together with the kids, how do we build like some sort of reflector behind us so that the fire is not just hitting us, but it's bouncing back off of a reflector to keep us warm? You know, it could be far enough away from the fire, please, but a big pile of, of straw bales if you have them available. Or it could be something else, right? But then they actually learn the concept of if we just have a fire, your front's warm, but your back is cold. But if we do this, then we can all be warm together. And you can have some fun and let the kids run around. 
Uh, some of my best memories as a father is when we live in Pennsylvania, the fire nights. that We did that through the summer up there because it's cool in the summer nights. And we would just have a big fire and all the adults would sit around the fire and the kids would run around playing capture the flag and stuff like that. It was a great time. Bring that in and then add some skill set to it, again, like cooking or, or what have you. Um, can be really a lot of fun. How about this? When, when turkey day's over and you got that big old carcass of turkey and all those little pieces of meat left in, on it, make turkey soup and can it. Do that over your holiday weekend and teach the kids canning with that. If you've gotten one of the electric canners like I recommend, it's dead simple, easy. If not, and you have to use a pressure canner, fine. Let's say you don't want a can or you don't have a canning material. Okay, make turkey soup, make it into small batches and freeze it. And then have that for dinner, but get the kids involved. If they're old enough, have them cutting the carrots and celery and stuff. And I won't go through how to make turkey soup. Google it. But basically, you boil turkey in water and salt. Maybe you add some stock if you need to. And you put celery and carrots and parsley in it, some garlic and onion, salt and pepper to taste. And that's it. I, I, I mean, how much? I don't know. How much do you want? But what a great thing to do, because you have that leftovers, and so many people end up discarding a lot of those leftovers, it's sad. And that's just a great thing to eat, you know, between now and Christmas on those cold nights. And you can either freeze it, or you can can it. But, you know, why not make it, and why not involve the kids? Even little kids, you know, you can give them, like, cutting a carrot stick. You can cut carrot sticks with a butter knife. They don't have to cut them all. They just get them to cut a little bit of it. Or get them to cut a little bit of the celery. Or get them to wash the celery and you cut it if they're too little for knife work and things like that. But get them involved. Get them away from the computer screen. Get them away from the TV screen. Get them involved. And that is very much a preparedness thing. If you want your kids to go into life prepared to take care of themselves, teach them how to cook. And it's something we don't do and it's sad. And males, females, I don't care. Teach them how to cook. Because... You're going to eat three times a day on average for the rest of your life. And if you don't eat, you, don't you, do you not die? There's nothing more intrinsic to our survival than being able to feed ourselves. And, and living on fast food is bad for your health. And even living on high-quality restaurant food, and some of it's out there, is extremely expensive. So it's bad for your financial survival. So I really think that makes a lot of sense. And that's another one. What are your ideas? I'd like your ideas for gifts and for like bonding ways with the family during the holidays to work on preparedness but have fun doing it. And I'd like to come back next week and share what your ideas are. So please come to the, um, to the blog today and for episode 1903, uh, in the, in the comments, leave me your ideas or you can send those to me. My email, jack at the survival podcast.com and put TSPC, uh, holiday fun in the subject line. And I'll, I'll just like lightning around read everything that comes in sometimes next week. And I, I'd love to hear your ideas again for gifts and involving the kids and for, you know, kind of bonding experiences that also expose them to preparedness mindset, like being able to cook or being able to deal with the lights out or something like that. So now we'll shift gears, and I want to talk about some of my plans for Nine Mile Farm in 2017. I'm not going to go real deep into them because we've already got about 40 minutes of the show knocked out. And I'm sure around the beginning of the year I'll want to go deeper into individual projects. But I want to give you some idea about what's going on up till now on the farm and what we're thinking about doing going forward. 
for those that are new to the show, Nine Mile Farm is a three-acre farmstead. It is is not a um, a big-time farm. Our primary products are duck eggs and quail eggs. We raise our quail in a um, an aviary that is uh, 50 feet long by 10 feet wide. And in there are grow beds from our aquaponics system that's that's inside a greenhouse that's adjacent to it. And our ducks number about 150 ducks. In the low season, like now, we get about four dozen eggs a day. In the high season, like the spring and summer, uh, we get 10, 11 dozen eggs a day. We sell to restaurants uh, and retail customers and farm-to-fork uh, stores and things like that all over Dallas-Fort Worth. And we generally have a waiting list, even in the best of times, to provide eggs to our customers. We've been very successful developing our market and our product. Uh, in fact, last night we went to um, Cadillac Ranch, Uh, not Cadillac Ranch. My wife always calls that, and I correct her, and now I go and say it. It's The Ranch is what the name of the restaurant, The Ranch in Las Colinas. And uh, they do a lot of stuff that's locally produced, farm-to-fork, whatever. And we were there as a vendor, and we met a lot of their customers and their VIPs and their executive staff. We were there for two hours at a table with our product and some imagery of our farm. It was a lot of fun. We met a lot of other great producers, and we're part of that local food movement. But the primary purpose of the farm really is to develop the property for ourselves. So the ducks and selling their eggs is a way to make them pay for themselves since they're doing all the work on the farm with fertility and grazing and I don't have to mow the lawn except, you know, I think three times in the last 18 months. So about once every six months I have to actually use the tractor as a tractor. And uh, so we, we've had pretty good success with that. But one of the big things we did this year with the help of my friend David is we put in an aquaponics system. We put in a, um, a, a 12 by 12 greenhouse, uh, pretty cool design. Inside of that are two 330-gallon IBC totes and some ebb and flow uh, beds. And then that's piped into our quail aviary, which, again, is a 10-foot by 50-foot structure with uh, 60% shade cloth over it. The quail run around on the ground, and then we have grow beds. And we put in, um, I think, three, four grow beds, and there's room for three, five more. And uh, all of it's banging. I mean, all of it's just beautiful. The growth is amazing. We've got tomatoes in the greenhouse that are, you know, we were planted last month as little tiny plants, and they're, they're, they're four foot tall now and reaching for the roof off of the grow beds, and uh, we've got basil and uh, fennel and lettuce, and we've got a couple raft beds. But what we're going to do is we're going to expand the other five or six or whatever it is number of beds are all going to be deep wicking beds. So the aquaponics water runs through lava rock that's about six to eight inches deep, and then there's about a good foot and a half of soil uh, above that that you can plant anything in at all, anything you'd plant in a garden. And with our our uh, grow house, we have a nine-foot back wall and a half round built out of uh, cattle panels that the shade cloth's on. So we'll be able to take vining crops in the back and kind of loop them around, and we'll have melons and cucumbers and winter squash and stuff hanging from back there. So we plan on expanding that whole aquaponics system, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I was a late convert to aquaponics. Um, moving here where gardening is really hard. It's it's like gardening on a parking lot here. Um, and having to fence out my birds so they don't eat my garden uh, kind of pushed me over. And the desire to produce more meat as well. So we do take some cold ducks and all, but it's not a lot. Uh, we do take some cold quail, but it's not a lot. And being able to bring fish into the mix, I put a, a pond in last year. 
There's 300 catfish in there. They're getting about harvest side, but having another source with tilapia and bluegill and things like that uh, was very attractive. And when I met David and he talked to me about how he wanted to do it, uh, I was fortunate he wanted to kind of like be part of this project and, and take the lead on putting it together. Uh, I buy the materials and he does it because he wanted to build something this size and this, uh, this scale. And uh, it, it's come out really good and we're going to definitely expand it. We're also considering, again, with increasing our meat yields, doing a meat run of chickens in the spring, late winter, early spring is a good time to do them here. Uh, we'll probably just do Cornish crosses. I did Red Rangers uh, before I did a run of 50 of those, and they were big birds. They were hardy birds, but I wasn't really impressed with the meat product of them. They certainly weren't really, really marketable. The dark meat was extremely dark. The thighs were so thick and so big with bones that even when they were cooked to the point of being overcooked, they still looked undercooked with like blood in the bones and stuff. And, you know, I want, I don't really care, but I want my family and I mean my extended family to eat the product I produce. And if it looks like that, especially my picky daughter-in-law, it's not going to happen. So the, the Cornish cross or maybe heritage whites, uh, and I'm thinking of running maybe, you know, For a harvest of 30, 25 birds running maybe 30 with accounting for some losses, and if I get a couple extras, fine. Um, building a tractor that's big enough to tractor that many birds and tractoring them in my west pasture. And a big part of why I want to do that now, and I, I really didn't until now, is last year I found the processor that I take my turkeys to. And they do chickens for $4 a bird. I don't want to sit around and process 25 chickens. I, 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 I don't really have time, but being able to process 25 chickens for a hundred bucks, I'm fine with that. And we're thinking about maybe, maybe running the first 25 and then talking to our customers and seeing if they want to do some kind of a, a crop share or something with another run, uh, doing 25 for ourselves, maybe giving 10 to family members, putting 15 in our freezer, uh, and, and maybe expanding and doing a little bit of that commercially. The problem I have is, I cannot use my processor in resell. I'd have to process on, on farm under Texas law. There's no uh, FDA-approved processing facility for poultry that will do small-scale stuff here in the area. And I don't want to self-process. I really don't. Um, but there are loopholes that can be exploited. For instance, instead of selling by the pound, I can sell by the bird. Once I have a run done, I'll know what the average weight of the birds is at a certain time. And I can just say that's going to yield out this. And let's say we come to a flat price. It's $20 a bird. And to, if you want to buy birds from me, you've got to buy a minimum of five. So that's 100 bucks. That includes processing and everything, except you're not paying for that. You're just paying for the bird. Got it? You pay me before processing day. And then in a, as part of my agreement, I hold on to your birds for you. I take them down to the processor. The processor processes them. And I bring them back to a place for you to pick them up, and you pick them up. That should actually be legally clean because you're not paying. You've, the birds were already yours. You own them. I just performed transportation services for you. That's the loophole that Joel Salatin oper operated under for a long time with beef. It may or may not be kosher. I'll have to figure it out. There's other ways to do it. Uh, we could have a, 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 a day where I say at 9 o'clock in the morning on this day, meet me at my processor, and I'll come down and I'll hand you a crate with your 5 to 10 chickens in it, and you go in and you, you drop them off in the back and you sign your own thing down there. If I have to do that, I'll do that. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. 
I don't know if there's a lot of money in it for me. I think I could make maybe a thousand bucks or a couple thousand bucks at it as a small thing for my existing customer base uh, that would be forgiving of this level of complexity. But I don't know if it's worth it. However, that many birds working my west pasture for me in a tractored model might make it worth it just for what they'll do to the land. So we'll see. But I, I think the only way I can make it work is my customers would have to be told minimum five birds at $20 a bird. And if you go out and buy pastured chicken, it's about what you're going to pay. A lot of times you might pay a little less, but those birds are smaller birds, like four-pound birds, and they end up like 16 bucks. Um, I would just keep them on pasture long enough until they're, they're bigger birds and give you a mix. Like you order five, you get you know two hens and three, three cockerels. So your total weight averages out to you know, you know know five and a half, six pounds a bird, something like that. Um, in any event, what we're going to do is we're going to do it for ourselves first. I just want to produce more meat on the farm. And uh, if nothing else, I may go to running 30 birds twice a year, once in spring, once in fall, so I don't have to deal with them in the summer. And uh, that's a reasonable amount for me to transport, part out, put into my freezer, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's the highest quality poultry you'll ever get when you do them that way. We've, we've learned that from past experience. So we're considering that. And we're, we're, I'll say what, I'll tell you what, it's not really considering, we're going to do a run for ourselves. Everything else is we're considering it based on how that run goes. Um, we are probably going to be adding a 50 foot, uh, 50% shade grow tunnel. Uh, to what we're doing. When I built the quail aviary, I originally bought a uh, 50 foot long by 16 foot wide piece of 50% shade cloth. And 50% shade cloth is a lot lighter in like its weave than, than 60. And 50 feet was just too long to put over the aviary. So I ended up buying individual, uh, 16 foot panels because the, 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 the run's actually 48 feet. And, um, put those on there individually and that worked. When I tried to put the 50% on, it was getting tore, it was getting caught because there's, uh, hardware cloth, you know, quarter inch hardware cloth for the quail aviary to keep predators out. Well, if we do a grow tunnel, we don't need any of that. All we need is just the cattle panels arched. And you could get it over that really easy. So we have this wonderful asset here in this piece of, of cattle panel. And my thought is to build a tunnel exactly where we locate it. We don't know yet. Maybe to the other side of the greenhouse, like a wing formation, except we have some issues with will we be able to access the back of our property with a truck if we do that. So that's a concern. But if we can make that work, it, work, it might go there. And then it'll just have two 50-foot long, probably two-and-a-half-foot-wide garden beds inside there. And the ends will have just low fencing to keep the ducks out. And I don't have to worry about, you know, predators getting in there or anything like that. It'll just be, you know, it will either do drip irrigation off my rain catch system or we might do wicking beds off the aquaponic system, though that might be a bit excessive uh, for the, the size of the aquaponic system. But who knows? You know, we'll figure it out. There's other things that could be done with aquaponics in there in addition to those lower beds as well to put in some other things. Just we haven't decided exactly what that might be yet, but that's neither here nor there. I think just having that 50-foot... 50% shade tunnel with basically a hundred foot of garden row would put us over the top on food production. We, 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 I would never need to plant an annual anywhere else ever again. And, and that's kind of attractive and being able to do a, a lot of like these cool, uh, unusual vegetables that I used to do before we moved here and being able to bring that back into our diet, I think is very attractive. So we're probably going to be doing that. 
Uh, we'll be doing another round of low-cost uh, perennial plantings. Uh, we put in a lot of things like locust and bush cherry, elderberry, aronia last year, stuff that I got for you know $0.50 cents to $1.50 a plant. A lot of it lived. A lot of it died. That was the plan. The hardy stuff survived, so I'll be getting a head count, so to speak, on what I want to back plant in, and I'll be putting orders from places like Coldstream Farm on those low-cost woody perennials and kind of backfilling the places where we lost plants. And uh, we should you know, be doing even better with those this year. We got a lot of really great yields this year. Our dwarf, dwarf mulberry yields were great. They're going to be fantastic next year. Uh, our bush cherry yields were pretty good, and they should only get better year after year after year. There'll be a lot of uh, vanilla cherry mead made out of those. I made vanilla cherry mead this year, and it was fantastic. I got a decent crop of elderberry. I think I would have gotten a better crop had my bees been here while they were in flower and they weren't. They had to go away and come back. So uh, we made some elderberry orange mead that was Oh, my God, it was fantastic this year. And so we're getting a lot more of those types of small berries and fruits coming in. So we'll continue to be building those up. Duck Chronicles Season 3 will begin in January. Um, we're looking now at what we're, you know, are we willing to settle for Khaki Campbell's because that's what we can get early in January? Do we want to maybe wait a little later and bring in more Welsh Harlequins? I've actually thought of bringing in a, a large number of Welsh Harlequins this year, maybe 40 or 50. And an additional five or six Welsh Harlequin drakes, killing every other drake I have. And that way we can isolate some of our Welsh Harlequins when they're laying. And you'll know anybody they bred with had to be a Welsh Harlequin drake. And starting to sell some, some Welsh Harlequin ducklings locally because they are impossible to find. And they are just a beautiful, wonderful duck with a good laying rate and a great attitude and Uh, they're just a duck that people like having around, and you can't buy them here. So adding another monetization product, instead of selling you know, more eggs, being able to sell some ducks to people that want a small flock or what have you, uh, we think that would be valuable as well. I'm kicking around. This isn't even in my bullet point list, but just thinking about the, the value that chickens could bring here if, in a tractor environment. I'm thinking about designing... Um, my own small-scale chicken tractor that would be designed to, to, to basically have about six to eight birds in it and um, putting some laying chickens back on the farm. We don't really have a huge market for their eggs, but I think we could. And there are times of the year when it would be really good to have them for people that want duck eggs and can't get them. And we do get requests for chicken eggs. I would have to say no less than $6 a dozen. And at less than that, I will feed them to my dogs. But just using the chickens more for work. And then my thought was to possibly kind of go with a business plan I'd rolled out as a small little monetary segment. Uh, last year, I'd mentioned people could do this for themselves, is to select some certain varieties of chickens to do this with that would be very appealing to people that want to keep chickens. You know, maybe well summer or something like that, I don't know. But that's a maybe, right? And, and I've learned a lot in the past few years of get one thing buttoned down and operating before, don't start another one until the first one is maybe not complete, but mostly complete. So that's an afterthought. That might be something like, we'll see how the meat chickens go, what our experience like tractoring them is, and then like, can we modify that tractor to have a coop? Because with you know laying birds, they're going to be around for more than you know six to ten weeks for meat production. You want a more permanent living facility, and you want to make sure it's easy to move and what have you. Um, 
you know, one of my big hangups here is I can't do Electronet. I can't step stakes in the ground. I just can't. Maybe 10 years from now, I'll build enough soil that I can, but right now I can't. So it needs to be a tractor environment. And uh, I have some different ideas how to do that. Um, my concern is in a tractor environment, having a rooster with those girls, having them get overbred. Uh, the other side of it, though, is he will not be in any way feeling he has to defend those girls from any other roosters because he's got his little kingdom and he'll never know that you can get outside of that kingdom. They'll never be, it'll never be a bigger world for them than the inside of that tractor. And uh, so that might work. And if we have problems, you can always eliminate roosters. But if we're going to you know, sell chicks, we would need them. If we're just going to do them for working and for eggs, then, you know, not a bad thing to just do all girls. So then you might look at doing something like the Easter egg chickens that produce the bluish eggs or something that makes them a little more novelty to our duck egg customers. We'll be selling, feed them the same premium feed. They'll be tractored, yes, but they'll still be on, you know, on the ground every day, moved every day. Um, we'll have to see if we want to do that or not. But I'm not talking about a lot of them. You know, I'm talking about maybe a dozen layers. Uh, so maybe you get a dozen a day, and that way they're just available when necessary. And if nothing else, uh, my dogs love eggs. So that's something else we're talking about. Um, And we're probably going to add, add another garden pond. I'm calling them garden ponds because I don't know what else to call them. Uh, I have my, my big pond, which is really not very big. Uh, it's maybe a 20th of an acre. You know, it's like, I don't know, it's probably 50 feet by 60 feet or something like that. Uh, but when I say garden ponds, I'm talking about I have uh, five of them right now, and they're built out of uh, galvanized stock tanks, uh, three 170-gallon ones and two 470-gallon ones, and they're all plumbed together. We'll have this platform that we put in that was originally designed to hold another rain catchment tank, and I, I don't really know that I need a rain catchment tank there. And the platform's about a foot high, and uh, we could just and it's it's made with coarse um, landscaping timbers, not the not the really cheap kind of rounded off ones, the square eight footers that are more like about a four by four size. And uh, I have the spikes already, you know, to drive through them and hold the courses together, like building a log cabin. And I thought about just building it up till it's about, you know, mid-chest high. That'll be high enough that I don't have to worry about the ducks getting in it or dogs pulling stuff out of it. And uh, if I remove a little bit of the material from the existing platform, uh, that'll give me about three feet by eight by eight, which is about 1,440 gallons of water that it would hold. And leaving some room for headspace, and I'll call it 1,200 gallons of water. That's a pretty significant aquatic system. And I could grow more fish in there. So I'm probably going to do that this year. And that's a really easy project to do because it's basically lay the courses, drop in the liner, drill a hole in the garage. It's right next to the garage. Pop a power cord through, seal up the hole, turn on the pump, cycle it, throw fish and plants in it. So we're probably definitely going to do that one you know, through this spring when the weather's nice and all. Uh, anything other than freezing weather would be good weather to do that one in. So that's what I have planned. Um, I do want to kind of talk about some final thoughts as we enter the holiday season. And uh, I'm going to do that uh, blended in with the song of the day. So before I do that, I'm going to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that I do, 
you want to support it and you want to get great discounts for products you're probably buying anyway, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more, and remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, all of you guys qualify for a discount. Just send me an email with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences. And remember, it's not active duty only. If you served at any time in any of those professions, uh, I will give you a discount on our membership, which is 50 bucks a year, and it's a really good discount. So it takes it down to about 37 bucks if you get the service discount. Uh, everybody else, you know, pay full price, but it is a product well worth what I charge for it. Uh, I get emails from people all the time saying they save well more than their $50 a year in discounts over the year. So if you want to support the show, that's the best way to do it. The other way to support us is through <clears throat> tspaz.com. tspaz.com, of course, is the way that you can shop on Amazon and give TSP credit for your shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra money or any extra time, really. And just instead of Amazon.com, you type in tspaz.com, and there's a link. You click that, you're on Amazon, you do your shopping, you check out, you get your items, same as always, and you support our show. And then additionally, on that same page, that tspaz page, there's a link where you can see all my reviews, and I do a review every day during the week. Today's review is a book. It's called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, a Home Manual by James Green. And it is fantastic. If I was told, Jack, you can only have one uh, reference book for herbal medicine, I would say that I need to keep my book by James Green. And I've read it cover to cover. The way I describe this book in my review is it's kind of like a dichotomy in itself. It's extremely approachable. The, the author comes in with some humility. He never talks down to you um, or, or tries to sound like an expert. He just is an expert, so he ends up sounding like an expert, if that makes sense. Um, it's very approachable. It's very easy to understand. It starts out with, hey, let's go make a tincture from dandelion. Because, you know, if we make a tincture from dandelion, um, you can probably find dandelion locally. If you can't, somebody can get some for you. It's inherently safe herb to use, so you're not going to hurt yourself. It's easy to identify, and no dangerous plant looks like it, so you're not going to accidentally make something toxic. And, you know, by getting started with a project out of the gate, you're going to get confidence. You're going to be able to go through the rest of the book and feel like, I can do the stuff I'm reading about. And it really is kind of interesting. I mean, the book's based on 30 herbs, and it ends up being 35 with some additions. And then it goes into other herbs, but it's built on this core of 30 simple, easy-to-acquire herbs. And it, it, you know, those 30 herbs, you can address most of the things you'd want to with herbal medicines. And it's, it's simple that way. But the other side is, while it's easy to read and approachable, it's like the other side of this dichotomy, it's like a full-course textbook on, on herbal medicines. It's a 384-page book that's like an easy-to-read textbook. And if you go through it chapter by chapter and make up, you know, two or three of the things in each section of how, like how to make, you know, um, a tincture, how to make an extract, how to make a hydrosol. You want to know what a hydrosol is? Get the book. You need a still to make a hydrosol, but you probably have everything in your kitchen to make a still to make a hydrosol right now. And that's a another way to use herbs or, um, how to use, uh, a glycerate. And what herbs can you make a glycerate from? What the hell is a glycerate? Why would you want one? You, you find out in this book uh, how to make flower essences in the Bach flower essences and, and all of these other things is in this book. And I, I think that 
most of the knowledge that I have on, on herbal uh, remedies, including just simply things like I did a whole four-part show series one time on herbal actions. It's all straight out of this book. And whenever you hear me talking about herbs and saying, well, Jack seems to know quite a bit about herbal medicine, it's this book. It's this book. This is like taking a, you know, a, 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 to me, it's this is like a year of college-level instruction on herbs. It's that good. Now, there is a bit of woo-woo in it. He's an herbalist. He's a dude with a pony. He's an old man with a ponytail, right? So kind of like a paganist, shamanistic kind of thing here and there pops up in it. it to me, it's no big deal. But I'm going to give you an idea of it because I don't want everybody to buy a book and go, I didn't know I was going to have that in it. So here's a quote from the book. And then I want to kind of tell you why I think even if it works you the wrong way, it shouldn't. He says, now that you have potentially identified and graciously harvested this plant, Offer gratitude once again for its life. Consider leaving an offering, like a strand of your hair, a prayer, a song, a story, whatever. Plant spirits are known to be deeply touched by simple gestures of appreciation. Okay, I'm not going to leave a piece of my hair behind if I harvest a dandelion root. But I can take a minute and think about it and say, you know, thank you to, to nature, to God, to whatever it is for me, to spirit. And, and realize with reverence that this plant can nourish me, and it's, it's a blessing that it's there. So my, my first caveat is that I think that whether it's religious or secular, it doesn't matter. Being filled with gratitude for the things in your life is, is character building, and it helps develop humility, which we all could use a little bit more of. So, I, I mean, I think it's as simple as I don't say grace when I eat, If I'm at somebody's house and they say grace, I bow my head and shut my trap and, 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 and acknowledge their desire to do so. But when I sit down to eat, I do think I'm grateful for this food. And, and I think there's value in that. But the other thing is, when I read that, it made me think of a documentary on Amazon people um, where a tribe decided they needed a new canoe one time. And this had to be 25 years ago. So the whole tribe gets together to decide, yes, they're going to cut one of these huge, beautiful trees down, and they really don't want to do it. And this tree's so old, it's older than anybody that's alive there. But they need the tree. They need this canoe for their way of life. So one man is selected as the man that will go cut the tree down. And the man goes to the tree, and he says a prayer, and he speaks to the tree. And he apologized to the tree for, for killing it. He explained that his people would have would honor the tree sacrifice, that the canoe and the other parts that they would use of the tree would serve his people for generations, and that they would plant a new tree. And uh, they would use the seed from the, the, the tree itself. It would be the tree's you know, son, basically. Uh, and make, they would make sure that tree was protected until it was big enough to survive on its own so that there would be a, a new mighty tree there one day. And... You know, people look at people like that and think they're primitive or whatever, but if we had that kind of reverence for every large tree we cut, I think there'd be a lot more forests in the world, and that would be a good thing. So it doesn't bother me that someone takes a bit of a different take at it than I do, and I think that's part of developing as a human being, is being able to see things like that and have appreciation for them, even if they're not the way that you would choose to come at them. So check it out again, The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. So kind of on that note, you know, my th final thoughts as we're going into the holidays is I'm, I'm already seeing it and hearing it on 
Facebook and on talk radio on the occasions that I'm in my vehicle and I listen to it, the whole war on Christmas thing. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. And if somebody wishes you happy holidays when you walk into a store, it's because they're not allowed to say Christmas. Maybe they just chose to say happy holidays. I mean, when did we get to a point where anybody would wish us well and we would we would look on that with animosity from wherever it came? So I, I will tell you that I use the term happy holidays a lot this time of year. Because it's not anti-Christmas. I, myself, do not consider myself a religious person. Um, I don't, but I respect your beliefs. And even if, even when I did share your beliefs at one time in my life, I still said Happy Holidays a lot. I also said Merry Christmas a lot. But the reason I say that is I feel like this week, through the end of the year, It's the whole time that, that I enjoy. I enjoy cooking for my family and having them come over for Christmas, for, for Thanksgiving. And we do a Christmas party for the family because we have such a big family and everybody gets their ass in a wad about Christmas Day and who's going where, whatever. So we just decided we start doing a party the weekend before Christmas every year. So the whole family can be here because no, there's no Christmas Day to fight about. And I enjoy, I have, it's like one of the few times that I have my whole extended family in my house. So to me, when I say that, I'm talking about this whole season. And I think it's wonderful. But if it's just Christmas for you, that's fine. But I think being able to see that other people value other things, and if it doesn't harm you, being okay with it is a sign of maturity. And I'd like people to kind of think about that. And I'd also like to say, you know, at the beginning of the show, I said, put the politics on the shelf until 2017. I'm going to do it here on the show. This is going to be a politics-free zone until next year when we start seeing what's actually going to happen. And part of the reason I think people don't want to do it right now is there's such a sense of uncertainty. I think even a lot of people that supported Donald Trump are thinking, okay, now what's going to happen? Now what's going to happen? You know? And so the song that I selected for you guys today actually is... Uh, Written, uh, in some ways extracted right out of the Old Testament of the Bible, Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, some of you went, oh, I know what song that is. It's all the way from 1965, and it's by a band called The Birds, and it's called Turn, or it's called Turn, 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 There is a Season, if you want the full, um, the full title, but most people just call the song Turn. And I, I kind of want you to realize that every group of people, every generation of people, gets into a position where they think they're unique, that the time is different now than ever before, and it's more important than ever before, and, and, and what have you. But this is nothing new. There, there, there is a time for everything under the sun. And in the end, it all passes away. In the end, all the things that we think are important seem very unimportant at the end of our lives, when hopefully we're with our loved ones and we wish we had one more day. There's a time for peace. There's a time for peace. It's kind of the final point of the song. There's a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. Well, there is times when the world is relatively at peace. And there is times when the world is relatively at war. And unfortunately, as individuals, we get very little say-so in, in, in having more peace in the world as a whole. But we have complete say-so over how much peace we choose to in introduce into our lives. And this is a time 
as we get to spend more time with, with family and friends that we don't normally see to invite peace into our own lives. And if you want to survive in the modern world, it's about having your head about you. It's about having your wits about you. It's about being confident in the person that you are. And people that have internal peace, they're able to do that. People that realize there are things out of my control that I can't fix, so I'm going to let that go and focus on what I can do, those people survive and even thrive in even the toughest times. So with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Everything turns, turns, turns There is a season